Hello everyone. My name is Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 11th of September. Please note that the majority of this podcast was recorded prior to our learning the sad news of the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. But we begin with a prayer. We thank you, loving God, for the faithfulness, discipleship and reign of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. We thank you for the strength, wisdom and long life with which you blessed her. We commend to your tender care her family and all who mourn her passing. May they know the truth of your promise that those who mourn shall be blessed. Pour out your spirit of compassion, kindness, strength and wisdom upon your servants, His Majesty King Charles and the Queen Consort. Guide and bless them especially over the coming days. Hear us in the name of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In our service today we head back to the Gospel stories and look at two of the most familiar of the parables of Jesus about being lost and found. And we'll end with a version of a song about searching. Before that, we have a number of other songs, including a version of Amazing Grace, sung by Elvis Presley and a gospel choir. A couple of notices. We meet for worship at 10.30 this Sunday, when our service will include some prayers following the death of our Queen and the ascension of King Charles III. We'll also hear a report of the visit to the Manor Estate in Sheffield at the beginning of this past week. Our afternoon tea plus prayer plus chat will be meeting at 2.30pm on Tuesday this week at Ollie and Brian Branch's home. And now our call to worship. Some verses from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion, it haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me, now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me.
Come as many and as one, to worship God, the one in three, to be encouraged and inspired, to praise the one who gives us hope. Lord, your very being calls us here. We long for your love, we ask for your leading. May we lift our lives to you today. Lord, who calls the lost to be found, who seeks to know us and be known, we worship you. We praise you for your constancy, your faithfulness, your unending love and your undiminished passion for the well-being of your people. But we come to asking your forgiveness. And our God, when we have closed doors where we should have opened them, forgive us. When we have stayed in the box where we were called to break out, forgive us when we have bubbled ourselves so thoroughly that we cannot even perceive what is outside our experience, forgive us. When we have been gatekeepers instead of welcomers, forgive us. May we ditch judgmentalism, throw away condemnation, and learn how to celebrate the loving invitation of your kingdom. Amen. Ever-loving God, you call us all into your family of grace. Where we have been lost, you seek us. 
You retrieve us, you untangle us from the thorns that snare us. Your hands are kind, you restore us with joy. Thank you for not only accepting us, but celebrating us, delighting in us, as we discover what it means to belong to you. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 15, beginning at the first verse. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the ninety-nine others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbours, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner, who repents and returns to God, than over ninety-nine others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbours and say, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. The passage I read today starts in familiar territory with the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling about how Jesus behaved. Most recently, their complaints had been to do with what it was appropriate to do on the Sabbath. In the past, they'd also queried the fact that Jesus didn't seem to be too choosy about the people with whom he associated. Perhaps the Pharisees and scribes were concerned that they were listening to someone who also attracted the sort of following with whom they certainly did not want to be associated. Their expressed complaint was that not only had Jesus allowed these people to come to hear him speak, but he was also known to eat with them. This very same criticism of Jesus and his disciples cropped up earlier in Luke's story. Levi, a former tax collector, whom we also know as Matthew, was now a disciple of Jesus, and he held a banquet to honour Jesus, to which Levi invited his former colleagues from work. Toll collectors, as they were sometimes known, were not popular people. This was less to do with their being in league with the Romans than with their being corrupt. The toll collectors bought the right to collect the duties that people such as the Galilean fishermen would have paid on their catch. The successful bidder for the operation would have to pay the duty to the Romans up front, but then they had the right to collect from the good people of Galilee however much they could manage. Obviously, there would be no point in going to the trouble of becoming a toll collector if you were only going to collect what you previously handed over to the Romans. No one makes a living by doing that. But it was a decent living if you collected more than you had to pay out. This was quite legitimate, but it was also open to abuse and dishonesty, and many charged considerably more than was reasonable. Now, one probably could be a conscientious and scrupulously honest toll collector, 
but there weren't many of those around. And these people were considered to be sinners, serial transgressors against the law of Moses. The expression that we find in the Bible, tax collectors and sinners, was used not to distinguish tax collectors from sinners, but rather because they had earned themselves the right to have a particular category of sinfulness all to themselves. Many of those whom Jesus met were those who were on the margins of society through no fault of their own. These people were those who'd contracted a disease such as leprosy or who'd been seriously physically or mentally damaged through a birth abnormality or following illness or accident. Others had been falsely imprisoned or had become enslaved through a personal or a family debt. But what about these people, these tax collectors and sinners? It's sometimes said that there were those people, and shepherds were included amongst them here, whose jobs prevented them from following the strict rules that the Pharisees applied. But there is a difference between someone whose job prevents them from praying or sacrificing at the appropriate time, and someone who lives by defrauding others. These people, about whom the Pharisees were so cross, were hardly the poor unfortunates of society, They were those who, by negligence or indeed willfulness, did not fulfil the law of Moses. So when the Pharisees picked on the tax collectors, don't feel too sorry for them, because by and large they brought it on themselves. But what did Jesus have to say about them? When the Pharisees and scribes piped up at Levi's banquet, Jesus didn't defend the toll collectors and sinners and say that they'd done nothing wrong. On the contrary, What he said was that they are like people who are sick, and it's the sick who need a doctor, not those who are healthy. Jesus is not saying that the toll collector's sinfulness is not their fault, but he is saying that just as the doctor concentrates his or her energies on the sick, so he, Jesus, has come to call sinners to repentance, and he has less concern for those who are righteous. Which brings us to our first parable. First of all, how realistic is this parable of the lost sheep? It seems a little odd that a shepherd might go off and leave almost all his livestock in the wilderness for the sake of one that's lost. It might seem to us to be irresponsible, not to say foolhardy, to chase after the possibility of finding one sheep and then risk losing 99 others in the wilderness. Such thoughts as these arise from our imagination turning to sheep grazing peacefully on the Cotswold Hills. But Judean shepherds routinely herded their flocks in barren places, and so the area where the shepherd left the flock was simply the place where they'd been grazing. We're not intended to be concerned for the 99 sheep's safety and fear that the shepherd has placed them in jeopardy. The clue to the way our thoughts are being directed is in the way Jesus starts the story. Who among you would not do this, is what Jesus is saying. There is a well-documented modern case of a shepherd doing just this very thing. Just over 50 years ago, Mohammed Ed-Dib was looking after his goats when one went missing. And in the process of searching for it, he found some ancient pots in a cave in cliffs overlooking the Dead Sea. In these pots were scrolls from an ancient community of Qumran, and those scrolls have become known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Why would the shepherd be so keen to find his lost sheep? Surely he would have allowed for some natural wastage. 
I'm not sure of the sort of relationship that livestock farmers have with their animals. They're hardly pets and are primarily kept for food. But elsewhere we are told that a Jewish shepherd would know all of his flock by name. So maybe it's harder to lose a sheep when you know it as, say, Flossie, rather than number 88. There may also be a psychological reason in that when we lose something, we often worry far more about what we've lost rather than the vast majority of stuff that we haven't lost and have still got. This is because when we lose something, what we have left is incomplete. And this is one of the most important factors in this parable. If the shepherd had lost two sheep, his rejoicing would be much tempered on finding just one and the full celebration would surely not come until he had found the second. Now, does this mean that he valued the second sheep more than the first? No, it simply means that without the second sheep, the flock is incomplete. We'll return to that idea in a moment or two, but I want briefly to look at the other characters in this story. Naturally, we tend to concentrate on the main active character, the shepherd and his lost sheep. But there are other participants in this story. There are the friends of the shepherd who rejoice with him. Looking into some of the background to this story, I found that their joy might not have been entirely rooted in their friend's good fortune. The finder's keeper's attitude that we encounter today was not a part of the society in which Jesus lived. In the ancient world, the concepts of stealing by finding was well known. But the Jews had taken this further. In the law of Moses, there was enshrined a sort of mutual insurance policy with the benefit of there being no premium. What happened was that if anyone found someone else's property, they had a duty under the law to hold on to it until they'd been able to track down the owner. If the property was an animal, there were careful rules about how the finder should proceed. The lost animal was to be taken to the finder's home for safekeeping, and there it must be fed and watered while the finder went off to locate the owner. In Jerusalem, it seems that there was some sort of centralised publication of findings and losses, like the small ads at the back of a newspaper. But out in the country, things were more informal. Rather than wait for the invention of lampposts so they could put up pictures of missing cats, They relied upon word of mouth. In time, the law became refined so that the value of the animal was set against the cost of the finder looking after it. There was a danger that an unscrupulous livestock owner could encourage one of his greedier animals to wander off so that some other poor soul would find it and be forced to feed it until it ate him out of house and home. And so we can now start to see that for the majority of a shepherd's fellow farmers, it will be best all round if the shepherd found his sheep. Their joy at his discovery would have been partly for their colleagues' good fortune, but also for their own, in that they would have saved their own time and a fortune in oats and hay if they happened to come across the sheep themselves. Let's move on to look briefly at the other story before we see what both these parables have to say to us. There has been considerable discussion about the nature of the coin that the woman lost. The coin is said to have been a drachma, a coin about the size of a one-penny piece, and at one time it had the value of a decent day's pay. It has been suggested that the ten coins were part of the woman's dowry. 
This is a nice idea in that her losing and then finding one of the coins could be seen as a symbol of a breakdown and then a restoration of the covenant relationship between her and her husband. This would lead us to see this story as a metaphor for the breakdown and restoration of our relationship with God. This is a helpful illustration, but unfortunately there is nothing in the story to suggest that these coins were anything to do with the woman's marriage. Just as there is a background to the story of the sheep, so there is in this story about the coin. I'm informed by those who know about these things that a drachma doesn't roll. It is heavily dished so that where another coin would roll, a drachma just flops. If a pound coin had been dropped in this woman's house, it could have easily rolled out of the door and into the street. A drachma would not. It was either still there or one of the woman's friends had pilfered it when she'd popped in one morning for their regular cup of coffee with their feet up watching Holmes under the hammer on TV. As with the shepherd's friends, there may have been an underlying reason for the woman's friends rejoicing at the finding of the coin. It got them off the hook from the accusation of having stolen it. Having introduced and put to one side the idea of the lost coin having something to do with the woman's marriage, I want to bring in another thought. Jesus and the crowd who heard him would have been familiar with a legend that was not in the Bible, but which involved Moses. When Moses was looking after Jethro's sheep, one strayed and Moses went after it, bringing it home on his shoulders. Seeing him do this, God recognised that Moses was the man whom he would call to lead his people. In the book of Isaiah, God is described as having carried his people out of Egypt, just as a shepherd carries his lost sheep. And Isaiah tells how, in a new crisis, centuries after the Exodus, the people remembered the days of old, of Moses, God's servant. And Isaiah asks, Where is the one who brought them up out of the sea? with the shepherds of his flock. In the book of the prophet Ezekiel, the leaders of the people are there compared to a shepherd, and most are found wanting. However, the prophet describes how God will intervene. I myself, he writes, will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. There is therefore a connection here. This story connects us to God's care for his people because God is the shepherd, and he is a shepherd who will search high and low for his lost sheep. The link to the story of the coin is not so straightforward, although you may not have thought that what I've just said is terribly straightforward. The link to the story of the coin rests on two assumptions. A Jewish husband would have been expected to save money for a dowry, while his wife's saving would have been for housekeeping purposes. Ten drachma was more money than was needed to tide them over for a day, but it would be about right for a journey to Jerusalem for the Passover. My first assumption is that a journey to the Passover festival is one possible purpose for this woman's savings. The other assumption comes in how the woman cleaned the house. The language used is reminiscent of what happened at the festival of unleavened bread on the eve of the Passover. Then the house was lit and swept to remove any crumbs of yeast that might have fallen to the floor. 
The woman was sweeping the house as she would prepare to celebrate the redemption of her people at Passover. So what has all this to do with us? Passover was and is a festival that is celebrated corporately. It is not just that a celebration is better shared with a group, it's actually enshrined in Jewish law how people should eat in households, which can be extended as appropriate so that all are included. Passover is a time of inclusion, and it is the time when all Jewish people remember that God saved them. If God is to be identified with the woman who loses the coin and the shepherd who loses a sheep, it's important to be reminded that God seeks completeness in the salvation of his people. It is in the interests of those whose lives are lived in the presence of God that all are saved, because salvation and God's purposes will not be complete and fulfilled until all are gathered in. Contrary, perhaps, to Christian prejudice against the Pharisees and scribes, these parables were told for the benefit of those who were already among those who were covered by God's salvation. Jesus told these stories to make it clear to them that seeking and saving sinners was not an idiosyncrasy of his, but rather it had always been God's purpose. It had always been God's character to seek and to save the lost. If there was any doubt to whom the sheep and the coin were to be compared, the word used for lost is the same word that's often used to describe God's people who have gone astray. The Aramaic word that lies behind the plural of the Greek word drachma is zuzim. There was a Palestinian joke. Why are coins called zuzim? Well, because they're removed from one person to another. Now, this probably had them rolling in the aisles in Nazareth, but I guess you had to be there. It helps to know that the word zuzim has another meaning. Those who have departed. You see, Jesus was making a joke when he spoke about a coin whose name means gone away, a coin that had got lost. But the joke had a serious point. These people who had gone away would be diligently sought, just as the woman sought the coin. God's purpose is to find those who were lost, to bring them into the fold. This was understood by those who saw him as one who brought in the lost of Israel. But God's purpose is wider than that. In Matthew's version of this parable, the interpretation given is even clearer. It is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. In Luke chapter 15, there are three stories about lost. The third story that Jesus told is much longer than these two and tells of a man who left home but returned and was greeted with joy by his father. In contrast to the man in that story, the lost in these two stories are incapable of making any decision to be found. The sheep and the coin await discovery by the shepherd and the woman. It's debatable whether the sheep knew it was lost and certainly the coin was blissfully unaware that it was down the back of the sofa rather than tucked safely in a purse. That these stories are told together with this other story of the prodigal son and the loving father suggests to me that the restoration of our relationship with God is complex in nature. How much do we turn to seek him and how much are we found? Is our searching for God no more than the helpless bleating of a sheep 
stuck in a thicket. It is right that we seek after God, but search for him as we will. If we find him, it is actually we who are found, and only then because he is looking.
Let us pray. In a world where the people of Ukraine live in fear of Russian tanks and bombs, where people in Pakistan have lost their homes and livelihoods because of flooding, living Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and mouths to speak out words of peace and justice. In our nation, where food banks are struggling to meet demand, where fuel prices rocket, where parents mourn children stabbed or shot in street crimes or indeed in their own homes. Loving Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and mouths to speak out words of peace and justice. In the church, where people seek companionship and friendship with those of their own age, where we are challenged to be faithful disciples, where we are called upon to serve the present age, in a relevant and up-to-date way. Loving Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and mouths to speak out words of peace and justice. 
to our new government as they face the challenges of our times and attempt to govern with equity and compassion. Loving Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and mouths to speak out words of peace and justice. And in our own lives, where we are struggling because of health issues, physical or mental, where we are fearful of the cost of living crisis and its effects upon us, where the impact of pressure and stress is often unseen and unnoticed. Living Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and mouths to speak out words of peace and justice. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me lie in pastures green. He leads me by the still, still waters. His goodness restores my soul. And I will trust in you, and I will trust in you, for your endless mercy follows me, your goodness will Trust in you. 
final song was written by you too but here is sung by the chimes i still haven't found what i'm looking for it reminds us that those who are lost are also often seeking as well sometimes the lost are also those who are searching they are searching to be found but first a final prayer god of the lost open our eyes to see the world as you do forgive us when we fail to see the lost Help us to look for those who need your love and give us the courage not only to offer them signs of your love but by your actions and words to share your love with them. Amen.
you 